Welcome to episode 50 of the Be Ready Training Podcast with your host, Billy O'Regan. The focus of my podcast is to explore the journey and the process involved in achieving highly across my guest's area of expertise. My guests to date have come from the world of sport, business and psychology. So if you or if you know somebody who may be interested in coming on for a chat, please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, be sure to check out my website, b-ready-training.com, where you'll find a great variety of programs designed for all goals, with or without equipment, where you can improve your mobility, build your strength and power, boost performance and feel good. Let's get back on track here with episode 50, where I was delighted to be joined by fellow Corkman and current athletic performance coach at the Sydney Swans, Shane Lee Han. Shane is a man who has honed his craft over many years coaching at top-level clubs, including the Leicester Tigers, where he was for five years working his way up the ranks to senior SNC before heading down under in 2015, where he spent seven seasons with Super 15 side Melbourne Rebels as their lead SNC. In addition to this, Shane was also selected as a strength coach for the Australian squad's 2020 Bledisloe Cup series. This will no doubt live long in the memory of Shane and is something that we touch on during this podcast. Throughout our chat, Shane gives super insight into his career to date, how he earned his stripes in one of the top clubs in Europe before venturing down under to make his mark felt in Super 15, and then moving on to the challenge of being an athletic performance coach in the AFL. We hear all about work-life balance in pro sport, what a week in the life of a top-level S&C coach involves, what makes a difference at the highest level of the game, and a whole lot more. So thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy. Good evening to Shane. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 50. I'm delighted to have you. No, thanks, man. Um, I know we've had a bit of email dialogue back and forth, so I uh, appreciate the invite. It's good to good to get on, have a chat, have a catch-up. So you're coming live from Melbourne, uh, a lucky man. We've relocated in more than one way over the last few months in that you, you've changed sports, you've changed cities. Just how's everything been? How's everything been going for you? Yeah, good. So um, I actually just got into Melbourne today. We've got a got a game tomorrow down here against the the reigning AFL champions at the at the MCG. Um, so yeah, I actually took up a role uh, with the Sydney Swans just passing twelve months now, so a year ago. But just with the the tail end of the COVID situation, I actually didn't end up relocating properly up to uh, Sydney until um, till after Christmas. So uh, we've kind of been settled in, in Sydney, sorry for two or three months now starting to get settled in but um yeah to be honest coming back down to melbourne feels a bit like coming home spent uh six years here and very fond of the place so um, yeah it's good to come back but yeah i've been a bit on um as i said you're relocating to a new city and then changing into a sport which i didn't know loads about so uh yeah there's been some adjustments on the personal side and then a pretty steep learning curve on the in the professional aspects as well Savage. I can't wait to get into all that later in the podcast as well. But just, I suppose, just to touch on and I suppose to set the scene f- for listeners, um, you've, you're playing Melbourne tomorrow, reigning champions, as you said, of the AFL. But how has the season gone for the Swans so far? I know he had a super start, but since then, it, it seems to be hugely competitive. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a very competitive league. And I guess the, the system here is, uh, you know, a bit like that. Um, American type um, NFL NBA type system where they they look for egalitarianism in the league. Um, in saying that, the Swans have been a consistently uh, high achieving and successful team in that in that organiser in that league structure, which is um, one of the things that attracted me to the club. Actually, they're kind of known as being a well run organisation, having good culture, and being um, 
con- uh, continuously competitive even with those measures to try and equalize the league uh, so yeah we started really well um, had a little bit of a bumpy period probably the last uh, or over the last kind of month and a half um, but some really competitive games in there like just lost out to some good teams when we played well and then a couple of games which we underperformed but uh, we had a, a good comeback win against uh, Richmond a very competitive Richmond team who've Won won three premierships in the last uh, in the last five years, so they're a good outfit too. So we had a good comeback win against them last week. So we're sitting at uh, seven and four now, head, heading into the, yeah round twelve tomorrow, which is around the midpoint of the season. Initially, when you came in from rugby, like you know, in your first couple of games in the AFL, was there much of a difference in terms of atmosphere in the stadiums? Yeah, well, um, particularly in in, in Melbourne. Um, Rugby is obviously a very uh, popular game in in Australia as well, but uh, it might be a bit hard to actually, you know, for for those who are living outside of outside of Australia to understand the popularity of Australian rules football over here, and particularly in Victoria and Melbourne, it's absolutely like it's football mad here. It's um, you could get sixty, seventy, eighty thousand people regularly at regularly at games. It's probably the closest thing you get to that Premier League style tribalism um you know and commitment to a team and then that sort of following as well so yeah it's massive it dominates pretty much uh, you know i was involved in rugby union here in melbourne and you have to go to the back page and skip through the first 20 pages in before you start seeing something that's non-afl related in the in the paper and wow. um, so yeah it's cool to be involved in that this big you know great support uh, gets a lot of media coverage um yeah big hype it just means a lot i guess to the people People in Australia generally, um, but very much in yeah. Victoria as well, where we are at the minute. That's crazy, like hearing that, because particularly, you know, when the Super Rugby's on here on Saturday mornings and like lads get up and watch that, like particularly if you have mm. boyfriends being of interest. So is it a case of like that you're hearing, you're getting messages from back home and seeing how things are going when you were in that setup? Yeah, I said, I guess it's actually interesting coming from that Super Rugby background. Not like I was the same out of woken up every, you know, it was a big thing getting Sky Sports back in the day and waking up on a Saturday, yeah. Sunday morning, sneak, sneaking in a super rugby game. And um, <laughs> rugby union is going through a bit of a challenging period here, actually, in, in uh, probably in the Southern, Hem- Southern Hemisphere full stop, but particularly in Australia. Um, but it's interesting, actually, I reckon super rugby is nearly more of an attractive product sometimes in Europe than it is, you know, actually on the doorstep here, you know, which is, uh, yeah, so it's had a bit of a, it's had a bit of a crossroads of the game here. But, um yeah, and saying that, particularly in Sydney, Sydney's a quite a, a rugby union stronghold. But um, yeah, generally, I'd say in Australia, AFL is definitely the the dominant team sport at the minute. Probably along with along with cricket, which runs in the cricket in the summer season, and then AFL in the in the winter season. Gotcha. Yeah, and even on the news this week with the uh, South African franchises coming up here to play European mm-hmm. rugby next year, it's like um, it's a split decision. Definitely. Did, do you have any thoughts on that, or is it something that you've looked into and thought about at all? <laughs> Um, yeah, I've worked with a. There's actually our um, head coach who was at the Rebels for a long period. I was there. Dave Vessels is um, involved in one of the Super Rugby franchises there in South Africa now, and um, like I think they're all excited about joining the European competitions. But I, and I think they probably the split. The big thing is the time zones, really. Like if uh, I know from being involved in rugby union here, people just weren't getting up at two or three in the morning to watch the Rebels, for example, play against the Sharks. Yeah. Um, so the time zone thing is quite significant, whereas I think that alignment between Australian rugby, New Zealand rugby, potentially um, Japan and the Pacific Islands is much more, you know, makes much more sense from a, a viewership perspective. And then the same thing with South Africa joining the, you know, joining 
um, the URC and joining in the Heineken Cup and Challenge Cup. So yeah, I think that's uh, in terms of growing the popularity of the game and, and even over here, even losing the South African teams, which is a big, you know, it was a big draw to Super Rugby when you're watching it in Europe, but practically mm-hmm. as a fan in Australia, it's a, yeah, it's a difficult follow getting up at two or three in the morning on a Friday or Saturday to watch, you know, to yeah. watch an Australian franchise play against a, a South African franchise. Absolutely. Speaking of getting up early, did you, uh, did you set the alarm for the Leicester Leinster game recently to have a look at your old club? <laughs> no, I, um, I was catching up. A lot, a lot. There's not too many left now for my days there. I've been gone for seven years now, but it's uh, it's great to see Leicester back at the top table. That was actually my first season there. We had um, it was a repeat. We played Leinster in the quarterfinal of the Heineken Cup in the Aviva. I actually put in an all right, uh, all right game, but um, I remember Nasiwa had a great game that day for Leinster, so it brought back some some fond memories of being involved in earlier European campaigns and in similar fixtures. I think that would have been 2011, potentially. Um, so, yeah, it's great to see like Leicester a big team, and probably when I was there, it was probably the, the tail end of their um, dominant period. And then I've had a couple of fallow years, but it, like it's it's a it's a massive club there. Like it's a massive club. Um, so to see them back at the top table and competing at the top of the Premiership and competing in European quarterfinals is a uh, yeah. Even though there's not too many too many there now from from my days, it's still a um, you know the club still has a has a special place in my heart, and it's good to see them going well. Brilliant stuff. Like getting getting more on track back to you, I suppose. And you're a family man, you know, working in professional sport. Uh, it's no secret that the work life balance there can be hugely imbalanced. Can you just tell us, like, I suppose, how you have nailed this over the last few years, and exactly that, how much of a challenge that it can be? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I guess it's interesting. Like you've been, you get into the career in your early mid twenties, and. Uh, your responsibilities aren't particularly high, you know. You know, I've got no family commitments. Um, my, uh, you know, my partner was quite happy to have when I was away at games. Was quite happy to have a weekend to herself, um, <laughs> you know, with me out of the house. And then, obviously, the dynamic of that has changed in the last few years. With uh, I've got a, a three-year-old girl, Lara, um, and my wife is actually due again in in August with uh, our second child. Um, so the, the the dynamics have changed a little bit. Um, yeah, it's difficult. I guess the you know I'm very lucky that I've got a very supportive partner who you know has followed me out to Australia uh, to pursue my career ambitions. Has followed me again to Sydney to um, to secure my to follow me again and allow me to pursue my my professional goals. Um, so I guess look, the first thing would be there's no way you can do the role really without a supportive partner, and, and I don't think it's actually it's no fault if that's not for everyone. You know, like it's yeah. That, that wouldn't be a criticism if Sarah turned around to me and said, I just don't want to move anymore. I think that'd be a fair comment after, <laughs> you know, especially uh, how things have been with the COVID situation the last couple of years. So having a supportive partner, definitely the big one. And, and I guess I've taken the view that um, I, I, I'm very passionate about what I do and I view my career as being a, a long game. It's something I hope that I'm not even halfway through in terms of my evolution. So I'm not in a rush to... Uh, climb the ladder, get higher positions, just move, you know, clubs or organizations. So I've been quite selective in the places that I've gone. Um, and I guess in the course of my career, I've put in two, you know, two six-year stints nearly at, uh, at two organizations. So I hope that when, you know, when I do, uh, 
when I'm looking enough to get an opportunity at an organization that I, that I spend time considering whether that's the right place for me and my family as well. And if it's a, if it's a stable organization, if the role is supportive of that work-life balance, if it allows me to uh, do the daycare drop-offs if I need to and pickups and, and all those things. So, uh, yeah, I've been yeah, one very supportive partner, which definitely helps, uh, and then probably being selective and making sure you're going to a supportive organization is a big one too. And it's a play in the long game. I hope I'm not even halfway through my career. So I'm not in a rush to get to, you know, get to, get to the top. I gotcha. So with that, like just like with the, with the pickups and is there early mornings, is there late nights or so on? So can you give us this, um, a look into a day in the life of Shane Lee Han as it currently is? Yeah, I guess, you know, one of the, one of the exciting and the demanding things about working in professional sport is that there's not too many weeks that are the same. It changes quite a bit from in-season to off-season, pre-season to, to in-season. Um, and then obviously the schedule, whether we're going, our schedule dependent on six, seven, eight, eight, ten day turnarounds, home or away games, like that changes the dynamic and the structure of the week. Um, although the week design remains consistent, whether it's a six or a seven or an eight, the, obviously the order which those weeks come can kind of um, can kind of fluctuate. Um, so yeah, that definitely presents some some challenges. Um, but I guess if I went an average week in season now, going a kind of a Saturday to Saturday turnaround, then if I take this week, we have uh, boys coming on a Monday. The recovery focus on oh, well, I guess first thing actually, I wake up in the morning, get my little one out of bed. Um, <laughs> put in a little bit of time at home um in the morning i'm normally at the door pretty early we normally have our first meeting around 7 30 um yeah so i'll be at the door early but that my daughter's up pretty early as well so normally get an hour in the morning um i'm actually pretty used to this on a monday tuesday to be honest there are big days so sarah sarah takes the load on on those days but yeah into work uh 7 30 meeting we'll be prepping then for uh the morning boys will come in for some um medical assessments etc after the weekend's game um they'll go through a bit of a, a rotation of um game footage review medical assessments and then um some strength training do a bit of flexibility a bit of upper body especially in AFL football guys are running 11 12 13 14 15 kilometers a game like they're racking up so that takes a bit of a toll on the toll on the body uh the boys have a light field session that day also uh Tuesdays are again early meeting so same structure to the morning um bigger field session we'll do a bit of prep mobility prep medical screening in the morning much bigger field session that day uh it's kind of our big uh, lower body strength day some plyometric work hamstring work um into a day off on the wednesday i'm quite lucky with the wednesdays where there's a bit of a culture at the club of spending that day with the family and not being nice. not being in the club which mm-hmm. isn't hasn't been true of every organization you've been in so they're they're quite good at orientating time at the weekend um yeah it allows me to take my little one swimming spend some time with the family um Thursday we have a bit of a later start we're just kind of getting into that real prep for the game then at the weekend we'll field train a more of a short sharp session a bit higher intensity boys will pick up their speed work on the field a bit more of a power orientated session in in the gym um and then Friday as an example we just flew down to Melbourne today uh captains are on at the MCG and then ready to go in the morning. We'll fly back, hopefully win the game, and uh, fly back on Sunday, and then we start the process all over again. Because the weekends are pretty dominated, obviously, by games, which um, like might seem a bit odd for, you know, I've basically just not stopped living my life the same way I was when I was a 
10 or 11 year old where all your weekends are consumed with sport pretty much just hasn't changed that much um but because of the because of that the club's been is pretty big on ensuring that kind of work-life balance um that day off is you know is a proper day off midweek so it allows us to spend some family time and then the sunday will be pretty clear as well and we're actually going into a bye week next week so again the club is good at getting people off site uh, allow them to spend some time with family get away for a few days yeah, you're not getting emails in your inbox every two seconds. It must be mad. Um, no wonder the weeks fly by. You're already mid-season, as you said. Like, so mm-hmm. when you're living your life like that, like it's it's no wonder that's the case. Yeah, it's um, it's also you know, it's it's really enjoyable. That you're um, you have that kind of carrot at the end of the week, you know, performing a big game. And and even though I'm not the one, uh, obviously kicking the goals or scoring the tries when I worked in rugby union, you kind of still get a you, know, you still get that buzz around match day and that energy. Um, which is a pretty unique feeling and something that's hard to replicate, and you just get to do that without running running a half marathon and uh, taking loads of tackles. So it's uh, best of both worlds. Yeah, uh, can you tell us a small bit? Like I suppose after a big win or after a win, like you know, we have far more access now to um, professional sports and like with Prime, Amazon Prime doing behind the scenes all or nothing footage and so on. And I know there's AFL episodes or, or um, series as well. Um, how much does it mean to the players and how does it compare to Rugby Union or is it similar? Um, no, I think the actual team dynamic is, is there are some like cultural differences, but I think mm. the, uh, to be honest, mate, it's the same feeling whether you're, you know, winning down with your local Bishopstown hurling at the weekend or, you know, or Sydney Swans, that team sport environment is, it's the same. It's just the ability of the players is is higher, you know. Or you know, you go from yeah, yeah, playing whatever it is AIL two to playing an international rugby. The actual team dynamic isn't isn't dissimilar. It feels the same. It's just uh, the quality of the athletes that you're dealing with and quality of the players you're dealing with is, uh, and maybe some of the uh, professional habits post are a little bit different. But in terms of that <laughs> that kind of uh, that kind of euphoric feeling or the you know or, or that that sad feeling you get is uh, is pretty yeah. universal. And I actually think, um, you know, it's like the kind of feeling I've been involved in, I've been lucky enough to be involved in a couple of grand finals um, and get and get wins. And I've also been involved in some big losses, but even being involved in something that evokes that sort of emotion, whether it's positive or negative, like, you know, it's great to be, to have something that you're that emotionally invested in and that you have um, a collective team effort that you're working together for it. So, you know, you, you kind of share the highs together and you share the lows together and, and just being, e- even the lows are, I think you're quite lucky to be involved in something that evokes that sort of emotion, you know, as, as a, you get to do that as a, as a job, as an occupation. Um, yeah. You have that kind of collective, you have that um, sense of, sense of collective purpose, which is uh, quite infectious. Gotcha. One more um, question on, I suppose, the, the weekly runnings of, of the Swans. Uh, what would those medical assessments look like? If you can give us some insight into that, if not, uh, no, I can give you. It's uh, it'd be pretty broad. Obviously, the we, we've got an excellent medical team here, led by uh, Damien Raper, who's um, very as highly experienced in AFL, and then we've actually got a very good medical team so he had something department's got very good um, football knowledge sorry very good afl knowledge but then mm. has kind of uh, collected a medical department around him which is quite diverse so um our justin doherty who's our rehab physio um comes from a professional soccer background 
Um, Alana Ancliffe is involved with the Australian national netball team, comes from a different angle. And then uh, Justin Merlino is part of that team as well, is uh, from an athletics background. So you've got people there, although we've got very good football expertise and understands kind of the game and the injuries and demands, we've also got uh, quite a diverse medical team in terms of experience that, yeah, and they've, and Damon's collectively or purposely, um, created that kind of culture of diversity within within that department and I think we have too on the athletic performance side uh, so players will come in I mean it's as, it, part of it's as simple as a you know questionnaire post game see so how they're reporting any injuries knocks um, and then they'll have a kind of a, a formal screening process on you know we've got technology that can measure their force outputs on hamstring outputs and groin strength and knee to wall there'll be, be kind of a battery of uh, tests and protocols there that they'll go through um, and that coupled with the subjective information from conversations will be that that'll be the process there really and then quite looking at having a diverse you know a diverse medical team who yeah, obviously really good football experience but then when we get kind of odd ones they've also got a uh, some very good diversity within that within that medical team that that's able to draw on their collective expertise to overcome any issues there gotcha Gotcha. So as, as you said, like sport has consumed your entire life. So if we can rewind the clock and just go back to the earlier days, I suppose we'll take it back to secondary school where I first came across you where you were actually coaching us in an under, I was on, it was an under 13, under 14 session. Um, and that's where I, f- I first came across you. So like one question I had in that instance was, was coaching something that was always something that you were going to do? Or did you even know or w- were your sights set on this early? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, probably the one thing that everyone that does my role across sports has in common is that we're all failed athletes. It's all people who probably weren't very <laughs> talent, weren't very talented, and thought we could, um, if we got fitter or stronger, then that would be the that would be the solution to our problem. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I intentionally had an outcome of becoming a professional coach when I started. In, in fact, I, I I didn't really because I think um, I'm not sure. When I was coming up through school, I'm not really sure that I'm, I'd say sports science in Ireland was in its, you know, early-ish stages. I I wouldn't have seen a direct pathway there in terms of making, I wouldn't have viewed it as a career um, path, probably when I started, started uh, coaching. Um, So yeah, I think I would have fallen into it accidentally to a certain extent. I was a bit of a sports nerd all the time, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the um, obviously the playing aspect but analyzing it um, the physical aspects coaching the technical side of rugby although I like never to any sort of level but say when I was younger I was interested in it and what I've probably come to realize now is that those collective coaching experiences even at whatever it is coaching under 13s at Christians or summer camps at um, I used to do summer camps back in the day with Munster rugby and etc all those uh, kind of accumulative experiences are still feeding into what I do now uh, it's very interesting like we'll go I don't know we'll be taking warm-ups outside and lads will be kicking footies and I'll say right last person in does a push-up and they all start racing in and I'm like that's the same thing we used to do you know I, I learned that taking under 13s at Munster Rugby summer camps you know or yeah. five seconds to get into threes whatever it is those same games are still applicable you know yeah. or um, so some of those kind of management strategy, strategies and coaching strategies have just evolved over a long period of time Um so yeah, did I have that ambition then to get into professional coaching? No, but I was probably a like a bit of a sports nerd and was very passionate about it and then was just lucky to kind of, well, lucky and worked hard to convert that passion into something which I get to do 
every day as a for a profession. <laughs> Lucky man. Uh, there's many a guy that would love to be in your position right now. Um, and kind of bringing that back again to CBC, like in terms of uh, rugby and, and senior cups and so on, what would be your standout memories from this time in that sense, but also maybe even from the halls of CBC, seeing as you're definitely not the first and probably not the last CBC man I've had on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, when I think back to my time at Christians, now I think of it very fondly. And and um, like uh, obviously, what, what I really think I was quite lucky at my time with Christians, and, and you might resonate the same, is that uh, like, I, I think you can get a good quality education in any school. You know, I think I don't think it's necessarily you know, you, know, you have to go to a, a school like Christians for that. I think I was just quite lucky with the the peers that I was around, people who were ambitious, mm. and that uh, you know, and in numerous fields. Like obviously, we had some good athletes and good rugby players, but just people who were ambitious and that um and that kind of drove ambition within me so uh you know that's mm. that's the thing i really reflect on i don't know if um yeah great institution but i think it's more probably the people that were there that um you know that helped elevate me essentially uh, yeah. so i've got some very fond memories in there when i think back to you know I, when i went there i came from a, a hurling background was my game really and played a bit of tennis when i was you know pre-christians and i don't know if i like I think what really what made me love the game of rugby was how um seriously the pursuit of excellence in that field was taken in the in the school like it was almost that that attracted me to it um yeah rather than rather than sport itself initially yeah uh, so again I think uh you know probably some of those values that were instilled through that process again is like that and coupled with being around ambitious people who were trying to do you know, trying to do good things, as I said, help mm. elevate, elevate me as well. Brilliant. Yeah, it's actually an interesting one, considering the number of uh, men from your year would have made it in, in professional sport, be it in the mm. coaching or playing sense, such as Billy Holland, Duncan Williams, Stephen Archer, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, quite a few in that. Uh, and, and quite a few we got, you know, close and a couple of lads ahead of me, like Ross Noonan was on Monsters Books for a while, Michael Essex, you know, Tara Hurley, guys who were, um, yeah, came through a good, yeah, good vintage and then obviously you look at the years around you. You got guys like Myler who've succeeded and you know went on to have a great career in professional football. And there's obviously yeah. numerous people that have gone on to you know good things in in other in non-sport related fields. So um, mm. yeah, I think it was more that culture of trying to be um, yeah, like it, it wasn't it wasn't cool to be lazy there. Essentially, it was like it was, yeah. it was which is probably not true of of every environment. And I think that's probably the thing that I am. Um, that resonated with me more say than although we had some like great teachers and educators and that that's not not to say that was poor but i think it was more that environment than than the the formal education side of it nearly gotcha yeah well put um moving onwards towards uh, ucc but definitely loughborough as well like so i know you studied arts in ucc followed by an undergrad then in loughborough university which is one of the most prestigious sporting universities in the world can you just give us a, a synopsis of your time here and i suppose what doors this may have opened studying in such a university like Loughborough. Yeah. Um, well, I guess when I finished school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I hadn't, uh, again, I, I didn't view kind of sports science at the time as a, as a career path. Um, so mm. I, I know uh, I, was, I, was, I remember my parents were keen for me to do something like commerce, which I couldn't have, any, couldn't have had less interest in. <laughs> um, and I uh, enjoyed history as a, as a subject in school and actually didn't enjoy the, didn't really enjoy the sciences. Um, 
went and studied yeah. a history degree and during that time I uh, I actually started out with the IRFU ran a certified conditioning course I think it was called CCC um, yeah. and it was run by Dr. Liam Hennessy who I didn't really understand know at the time but um, Liam is really one of the he became a mentor to me afterwards and really helped guide my career but Liam is really one of like the OGs of sports science in in Ireland really like he's uh, mm. he was there in the early days um, setting up the professional structures like the player management system is obviously well regarded in Irish rugby worldwide and he was there at the very start setting up that process um, he had a very prestigious career at, was at Bayern Munich and Juventus I think for a period of time beforehand PhD graduate I, anyway that was my first exposure to sports science which I didn't really understand at the time how um, how fortunate I was that it was under under someone like that okay. um, from that I kind of started doing a little bit of work with the uh, with UCC more in an amateur sense under uh, Gary Byrne who gave me it was the director of rugby there at the time who actually gave me a lot of time and a lot of opportunities and I kind of figured out halfway through that that's really what I wanted to this is what I was interested in um, so I had a year left on my history degree um, so I thought I'd finish that up obviously um, quite lucky where third level education is um, heavily subsidised in, in Ireland um, mm. and I was working the whole time so that allowed me to put a, a bit of money away to help um, to go back and study sports science then when I finished uh, when I finished my undergrad so it's quite uh, there's no way I would have got into Loughborough to be honest Off the if I had come straight from school it was really off the back of having an undergrad in, so, so the whole process is kind of a, I won't say serendipitous but you know I met guys like Liam Hennessy and Gary Byrne who fostered an interest in sports science finished my history degree which allowed me to gain entry into one of the most prestigious sports science universities in in the world you know so I wouldn't have got straight in there from uh and I had a bit more life experience too by the time I started my undergraduate in Loughborough I was 21 and I knew what I like I knew the I knew what I wanted to do there there wasn't I wasn't trying to figure anything out over the course of that journey it was how do I work in professional sport essentially um okay. so it's very clear so yeah I had a an unbelievable three years in uh in Loughborough both academically and then it's one of the greatest party unis in uh oh. in in europe too i reckon so that was uh that was quite good fun um and then it's a great spot like you've got uh british swimming are based there english cricket um like lots of olympic level athletes uh, you know great rugby team good basketball teams and um, you know full of ambitious people and athletes people interested in sports science and then you've got guys uh Again, like a great sports science department, Clyde Williams. Again, who's one of uh, you know one of the kind of OGs of sports science in the UK. Is you know one of the primary uh, researchers and lecturers there. So again, around a great like innovation of both applied practice and high high quality academic practitioners as well. Um, so yeah, I had a great time there. Loved like actually loved my course. Like I would, I loved it. I loved every lecture. I loved every lab. Um, and it's interesting coming from a background in school where I didn't really enjoy the sciences, but then as soon as the as soon as science was framed in the context of something which I really enjoyed, not only did it open up a love of science of sports science, but it actually opened up a love of science full stop. Like you know, it, it completely changed my narrative on that. Where it's you know the um, yeah science generally interests me now off the back of that door being opened through sports science. Yeah. Um, so yeah, unbelievable three years there, great academic institution. Um, yeah, very vibrant uh, place. And then during that time, I because I was very clear on what I wanted to do, I picked up a number of internships, um, 
bit of time. I'd, I'd go back and spend time at Monster during my off seasons, coach, or during um, the breaks in the academic year. Uh, mm. Back helping out with Monster in the twenties and Middleton hurling, and whoever would whoever would take me really to rack up some experience. Um, spend some time with the with the Irish team interning um, with the Irish Academy at the time. Spent a summer up with Ulster. Uh, in turning up there and then did some work with the Leinster um, Leicester sub academy uh, so yeah accumulated lots of uh, you know the academic experience but then also accumulated plenty of practical experience because it was very very clear on on what I wanted to do and then coupled with that I was coaching all the time with the university teams um, as well so yeah that led me right. led me to an in- internship with Leicester Tigers then afterwards which is Leicester's not too far away from Loughborough so uh, by the time I'd finished that Loughborough experience I'd had a great three years and then had accumulated a fair amount of uh, practical experience it was a bit further along life-wise I was 23 going on 24 um, and yeah it was very clear on what I wanted to do so <laughs> you were but you were behind enemy lines many a time there, like you know Leinster, Ulster, Leicester. Then for your yeah, for your yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't important <laughs> enough at the time, so I was. Uh, they let they let you carry water everywhere. That's uh, that, that's that's good. <laughs> but definitely moving into Leicester Tigers because, like, I read a savage article. I think it was with the forty two, um, where you described your time there and your initial meeting of uh, Richard Cockrell and and getting introduced to the club as well. So, like, I'd love to hear. Um, how much of an impact he had on you from, you know, a standards point of view, but also how you made such an impact that you were kept on there and was lead S&C for five years. Yeah, the um, yeah, I remember rocking up on day one, I kind of like shoulder length, bleach blonde, bleach blonde hair, which uh, like Lester is very much um, <laughs> work, working class Midlands <laughs> club, which is known for its toughness. And I was coming along with, uh, I think, uh, yeah, shoulder length, bleach blonde hair I was probably wasn't the mold you know the, the skin helmet mold of uh, Leicester at the time <laughs> I remember my um, I remember my first ever meeting with Cockery came in the gym and uh, Alex Martin who was head of department um, introduced me and he said uh, um, he introduced himself and I said it was Shane and I, I remember I replied saying like what should I call you meaning like what I meant by it was should I call you Richard whatever coach boss and he yeah. looked at me and then looked at Alex and said, I just effing told you my name. What do you mean? What do you call me? And I was like, oof. <laughs> um, anyway, so, but um, yeah, what, what, Leicester was a hardworking environment and I was willing to work hard. So I was doing a, you know, I was doing all sorts there. I was primarily with the first team, but I'd work the academy. I'd do the second team. Uh, like we'd be gone away game. I'd work all day with the on a Monday after um, a premiership game and then play the Monday second team games on a Monday night I'd travel away up to Newcastle for a second team game come back in at 6am the next morning work the academy Tuesday night I just kept going basically um, I was very clear what I wanted to do and I, I was actually very lucky I interned with the guy uh, Matt Johnson who went on to have a great uh, career there as well We, I mean, we were both interned and I think uh, we were good mates but I think we took the view of if there was one job there we were like we were competing with each other for it as well, so we were, mm. you know, always trying to upskill ourselves. And um, uh, yeah, and I, I joined the end of that season. He went back to uni for a year, and then came back and had nearly a decade there at, uh, at Leicester Tigers following. So I was quite lucky with the people I was around. Um, but yeah, Cockers is uh, Cockers has got a like a track record of being successful. In you know, he was at Leicester, very successful. Went to Edinburgh, very successful. Gone to England. Um, 
And I think uh, he's quite an abrasive character and has very high standards. And I think uh, it, it's interesting. I, I, I speak very highly of him. He's very loyal, very demanding on standards. Like guys would come in wearing the wrong socks and they'd be sent home. Like it just wasn't acceptable being not not adhering to the standards of the of the club and the organisation. Um, and, and it's interesting spending time with that one. I think sometimes some of the, the things that Cocker's strong on they're not the sexy things that people talk about in coaching anymore. You know, it's kind of a, you know, relationship building and athlete autonomy and player buy-in and uh, which is all relevant. But like Cocker was just a really hard bloke, had really a good technical knowledge, very hard on standards, um, very demanding of players and staff. And then in return was very loyal. You know, that's the, and I think some of the, um, I don't know, you get the odd kind of a newspaper report that pops out from his time at Edinburgh where certain players felt, you know, which I get, felt, uh, and it would have been the same at Leicester, that he's, you know, too hard and too abrasive and whatever else. But my uh, my experience of him have been, have been, I won't say all positive, largely positive, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like good, very good, um, very good motivator, ran a tight ship, ran a tough ship, but was very loyal in return. Yeah, well, it paid off for Leicester, particularly around that time period, reaching a number of, yeah, definitely late stages of the European Cups and, and premierships and so on. So it, it paid off. But when you when you went into Leicester, what, was it eye-opening? Or had you felt that you had enough hours under your belt in different clubs and different environments that you that, that that's what you expected from such a high-level club? Um, I, I think at that time I'd accumulated enough experience relative to the role that I went in. Like I started there as an intern and then was very much a junior staff member. I think I'd accumulated, I understood how, when you go into an environment like that, when you're starting out, you can't contribute technical knowledge. That's what you can't do. Like you're not going to turn around to Dan Cole or Manitoulagi and say, this is how we're going to improve your speed or your whatever, scrumming ability or whatever. Like you don't, you haven't, you haven't accumulated the technical knowledge and you haven't accumulated the coaching experience to you know, to impact players in that way. What you can do is say, what you can do is say, I will like, I'll work really hard for the department and the organization and I can contribute that work ethic in the start and then I'll upskill as we, you know, I'll continue to upskill that down the line I'll be able to, that I will be able to provide that, uh, that, um, more technical knowledge and coaching expertise. So I remember when I started, like, and Lester was really good. Alex Martin, who uh, is probably a name that many people don't know, but he's like, is, is a really top end um, practitioner. He's joining another in the process of going in another Premiership club now, but has a real track record. He was head of department at Leicester for ten years and has a track record of running successful programs. And he was big at the start on you know recruiting the right people and then giving them responsibility early. So I had uh, you know kind of three players directly under my supervision um you know from the very start basically from when i became a a junior member of staff and, and while we had kind of departmental philosophies at the time in terms of how we were developing different um you know different physical parameters the actual nuts and bolts of programming was left down to the individual so you were deciding what exercises what sets what reps when they do it etc um so yeah I, I was lucky to have a good mix of enough experience to fulfill the, the, the junior role probably enough um common sense to know that i wasn't going to come in and have the technical knowledge to yet to and the coaching expertise to really um you know add value in that sense so that i would, I would add it elsewhere as i as i upskilled 
Mm. So I think that, that that was the big one really. I probably knew how to handle myself in the environment rather than rather than came in as an expert trying to solve the problems there. I gotcha. Well, it must have accounted for a lot, given that you you were you know you were given your contract and you and you stayed on for such a long time. I do remember reading as well that you had to sell some gym gear in order to. <laughs> play off yeah, the, the um, yeah, I remember. So the the process was uh, like I kind of knew I was in the mix of. Um, I I'd actually always remember the our our budgets were a little bit dependent on how far we went in a in competition, and I remember. Um, you know, if you if you read the latter stages of the, actually, I think the more lucrative games it might be changed now. This is nearly more than ten years ago now, but uh, yeah, a lot more than ten years ago, only fifteen years ago. The but at the time, it was like you get to the latter stages of the European Cup, or if you got a home semi final in the Premiership, those were big kind of TV games and, and yeah. associated revenue. And I always remember we played a European Cup game, and I knew it was kind of like fifty fifty that they were talking about, but maybe staying on. And uh, we had we played a game against Perpignan for a home quarterfinal i remember if we won the game we'd get a home quarterfinal versus an away quarterfinal i think we'd already qualified and i remember uh billy 12 trees got a penalty in the last minute we were drawing the game and got a penalty in the last kick of the game against perpignan um on the southern end of welford road and i remember thinking f yes he's going to kick this we're going to get a home quarterfinal there's a bit more budget and uh (laughs) And he rocketed, rocketed the ball off the post, and I was like, "Oh God!" Like that could be my, uh, <laughs> no. that could be my contract there, ricocheting off the uh, ricocheting <laughs> off the post. But um, and, and this is where I got a lot of time for a cocker. His cocker came to me at the end of the year and said, "Look, there's not an awful lot of uh, there's not money left in because we had kind of designated budgets for S and C and medical and whatever, and the kind of S and C budget was done." But he said there was a oh, not much, was something like twelve or fifteen thousand pounds left in the in the kind of salary cap budget and he was like you've done a good job we're happy to orientate that towards you if you if you want to stay and i was like look if i've got a title you know from a yeah. professional strength and conditioning coach at leicester tigers and a contract then um then i'd love to stay and i remember that and then we had a number a bit of old uh, gym kit we were kind of renovating the gym at the time with some old kit so if i sold that i got to keep it so I saw some kit. I remember we had some uh, wooden platforms we were tearing apart and i was calling people trying to sell wood so i think i got another so three or four thousand pounds together through selling wood which covered my rent for a few months brilliant brilliant what you gotta do i suppose yeah um, exactly yeah uh, moving like so obviously it was uh, again it comes across it was a very difficult decision for you uh to move down under uh, to melbourne rebels but like on that it's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity you probably couldn't turn down can you tell us how that came up and i suppose just about, about getting into the melbourne rebels and how you went about making an impact given that these players probably didn't know of your achievements to date yeah the um so i guess that opportunity came around it's been to yeah, five five and a half seasons. We were kind of just uh, we were midway through my sixth when um when I departed there, and it, it wasn't an easy decision. I remember being quite uh, I probably had a bit of that first uh, first job syndrome, where I was very uh, emotionally attached to the organisation, and then you know we'd been through we'd had some successful times there, which was a privilege to be a part of, and it's a very storied club. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, the opportunity came around actually through uh, so Bryce Kavanagh, who was head of performance at Monster. At the time, um, he's now at England. He's had a performance at England football, England soccer. Um, Bryce was a head of performance at Munster when I was at um, Leicester. So when I'd go back home and see the parents, I'd pop in, 
see what was going on, catch him for a coffee, uh, invite him over to Leicester a couple of times, came in came in to watch what we do. Um, and he'd moved to Melbourne to the Rebels, so I remember just got a text one day, and they were potentially looking for someone. Uh, they were talking about someone in 12 months' time. And they were like, uh, would you be interested in joining in 12 months' time? And I was like, um, well, well, happy to discuss it. Um, obviously, I'll probably re-sign on it. Leicester here I'm pretty happy anyway I wake up one morning and I was like could you be here in three weeks time so it had to be a Jeez. it was a quick decision we just uh, me and my wife had actually just moved in together at the time just moved into a place in in, um, in Warwickshire um, so yeah it was a quick conversation so I uh, I, yeah I would look I grew up watching Super Rugby in the mornings and was pretty you know pretty excited to, to do it and actually there's a lot of practitioners that come from the southern hemisphere and operate in European clubs there's not too many of us that go the other way um, that come yeah. from European clubs and go to and go to the southern hemisphere I think there's only five of us today actually that have done the reverse role um, you know where there's plenty of Aussies that have gone gone the other way um, so yeah it was it was a once in a while and the, the club was in a pretty unique situation actually they'd just been uh, bought out by a private owner who was willing to kind of relocate staff and that uh, if they were you know they were willing to do those things which isn't you know if you went now post-covid world then I don't think that even if they did want me to be a different story with the yeah. you know with how sports being affected so yeah um, Bryce offered me that opportunity uh, it was a pretty quick decision to make but um, yeah it, it definitely a big emotional attachment leaving Leicester but the chance to experience Super Rugby was something and to live in Australia a country which I'd, I'd visited once before and, and loved it um, mm. the chance to to live there uh, live and experience Super Rugby was just too good an opportunity to, to turn down um, yes pretty exciting no doubt getting in there amongst those players probably and I've heard you describe them as excellent movers which I thought was very interesting and um, what would you put this down to and again just in terms of the impact how how did you go about kind of getting in amongst it and making your presence felt yeah I'll probably go reverse order on that like I actually learned a lot of lessons actually probably the lessons I learned from that transition from Leicester to the Rebels has kind of very much shaped my opinion now you know, as I as I progressed in my career, because I, I actually don't think in hindsight I I handled that um, transition particularly well. I came from a very successful organisation with a lot of good players, well resourced to a a new organisation with less resources and less depth, and basically tried to. Uh, I probably thought I had all the answers at at the time. I actually met Bryce recently. Um, Bryce was over from visiting Australia from the UK. They're obviously getting ready for the World Cup there in Qatar later in the year, and I. I've said this to him a couple of times. Like I said, I, I don't know. I wouldn't recruit me now in 2015. If it was me recruiting me in 2015, I wouldn't do it because I thought I knew, a, you know, I'd come from a program that was winning all the time and thought I knew all the answers. Yeah. But um, yeah, being on the other end of the table tends to make you a bit more humble. Um, so I actually think I made the mistake of coming in there and inputting a kind of Leicester-based program into a, a Melbourne Rebels environment and uh, not really taking into consideration the the full context of that environment so there's a number of differences there between european competition and uh, and super rugby one there's much smaller squads and the the depth of those squads is is less as well so like the difference between your starting fullback and your and your backup is significant whereas if you're rocking around a monster or leinster or leicester you probably got you know you've got a an experience, potentially another international in that position to, and to come in. That's not the case in Super Rugby. So you have to be mindful of the impact that you're having. Um, the second one is like that the competition is a sprint. Like you go, you lose three games in November, December, three games in a row in November, December in the Premiership or 
the rugby championship and it's not good but it's not the end of your season if you lose three games in a row in super rugby it's a 15 round competition you're like you could be done so um so like you know the impact you can have if one of your key players gets a tight back because you're pushing him on a squat PR and he misses a game then that has a bigger impact on a, a you know a Melbourne Rebels team than it does on a, a Leicester Tigers team or a Leinster team or a Munster team so I learned mm-hmm. some important lessons from that um, uh, yeah from the from that transition and then yeah I mentioned that article about them being good movers I guess it's the culture over here like one the sports culture over here is much more diverse than Ireland England's I, I guess one like the climate here is obviously a lot better. People are outside more, so I guess where you might have, I think there tends to be a little bit more specialization in a, fewer sports in Ireland than the UK. UK is obviously very football, rugby, maybe cricket dominated. Obviously, Gaelic games, um, rugby, football in 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 Ireland maybe, but like over here, you've got like basketball is really big. They're at the beach all the time. They're surfing. They're yeah. playing AFL. They're playing cricket. They're playing soccer. And uh, so the, the the kind of movement literacy is much more diverse probably than than what we have growing up. Um, the second thing is like that the academy structures and the specialization doesn't really exist over here in the same way it does. When I was at Leicester, we'd have a sub-academy that was starting at you know, 13 years of age, teaching guys how to, you know, basic movement patterns and, and you know, and basic lifting patterns and running patterns. Here, like you're good in school and then you get recruited to a super rugby team and uh, you know, or to an AFL team or whatever it is. But yeah. the difference is like, so you, you haven't spent your time. Uh, and sorry, the last one there is that you get less wet days. So blokes aren't, or uh, um, boys and girls aren't like, it's a wet day, I'm going to go to the gym there. It's a dry day, I'm going to go to the beach or I'm going to go kick around the footy or I'm going to go play tennis. You know, that's... Okay. Uh, so what you do, I think, what what I observe, I think, is that you have less formally trained athletes than probably maybe what you have in European systems, but right. athletes with greater uh, movement literacy, movement diversity, as a nature of the the structures and their upbringing over here. You know the yeah the climate and the structure of the of the sports organisations. Brilliant, yeah. Must make the job of a coach, particularly in the younger age groups, uh, that small bit easier. Yeah, I think so. They're um, well, well diff- easier and more difficult. It's a uh, like it's you know if you want to be a, a rugby coach, for example, it's difficult to pin down you know little Claire or little Billy to rugby training on a Tuesday night because they might be going to I don't know they might have something else on that night you know tennis or netball or surfing or, or yeah, whatever yeah. else. You know? um, sure. But then I, um, yeah, but my experience is that you probably have Austrians or. Yeah, generally good good movers. They don't have that formal training history that a lot of European what the academy system, systems don't start. And maybe the yeah, I said they're spending less times in in gyms and training fields, and maybe more time outside doing diverse, you know, more uh, diverse activities. Brilliant! Yeah, success leaves clues, as they say. And. <laughs> um, you know, I just thought it was an unbelievable achievement for an Irish man to do what you've done, but like to get international honours, be called into the Australian squad, touring New Zealand, uh, I believe it was around wintertime 2020. Can you just tell mm-hmm. us about this experience and um, your main takeaways from it? And I suppose your main job roles, given that these players aren't going to necessarily get any fitter during these touring periods. So was it all uh, down to load management and hastening recovery? And um, so if you can just give us insight into that. Yeah, well, I guess uh, the opportunity came out 
initial discussion started about doing that role pre-COVID, and it was going to be the uh, it was actually going to be the Ireland Ireland were meant to be touring Australia that summer, so it was uh, I was meant to do the Ireland tour into the rugby championship, which I was um, yeah super excited about, and then obviously COVID hit. And uh, yeah, I went from a, a hub in a bubble in Super Rugby straight into a bubble with the international team, and we we're kind of waiting to see what the format of that competition would look like, whether South Africa would come, etc. So we ended up playing um, four consecutive tests against the All Blacks, two two in New Zealand first at Eden Park and Wellington, and then two back here in Suncorp in Brisbane, and um, and a core stadium in Sydney. So like like really unbelievable experience, probably what I you know. Well, yeah, probably dreamt of playing in games like that when I was younger. Not maybe not uh, on the coaching side, but being involved in a game like that was uh, and games like that was massive. Um, I was also very lucky there to be, you know, around some excellent practitioners. So uh, Dean Benton again. I've been more by more by chance than um, you know than design. I've been lucky to be around. You know, or I said mentioned Liam Hennessy earlier and Alex Martin, Bryce Kavanagh, and then. Um, Dean Benton, John Pryor, who are you know the, the kind of main main guys there involved with the Wallabies, like the, they're some of the world's leading practitioners in athletic development, and I've just been, yeah, very fortunate that my path has tend to um, intersect with theirs at various times. Um, so I guess my primary role there was maybe looking after the um, the traditional. Um, strength training was the I guess it was like strength coach there really was a primary role obviously quite diverse though you're doing acceleration speed warm ups all that um, you know game day roles but I guess primary responsibility would have been strength and traditional strength and power training and um, and then John Pryor who was involved in that program is um, is excellent on um, running mechanics um, some of those Franz Bosch coordination based principles um so like just uh like very interesting being around guys who uh dean dean benton john pryor warwick harrington who were part of that kind of athletic performance team or um just think about athletic development differently to a lot of people um okay. you know and I, I guess my job was to you know, keep on track of the more traditional strength training and then to be around those guys who are you know excellent on movement-based training coordination principles speed development um training design so the training design is technical training design rugby training is also eliciting um, physical outputs that are representative of test match rugby so you know, being around kind of guys who are thinking about who are thinking about athletic development and sports science in that way was uh, was was pretty exciting um yeah and then there's a uh, probably a bit of hiding the the fanboy nature of being you know on the <laughs> sideline for a for a Bledsoe cup game as well you know I can't imagine. That's one thing that I hear coaches speak about a lot is as you go up to your levels, the speed of the game is what increases. Was it was this obvious to you when you were on the sideline at these games? Yeah, I think like the speed does increase, but the the reason the speed increases is because the quality of the players is just keeps improving. So the you see better technical tactical outputs. Mm. There's, there's less mistakes, and guys are better at putting the ball in the right positions and executing, you know, uh, and executing, um, uh, and executing those patterns. And, you know, that, that couldn't be more clear. It, it luckily, not luckily it's because Australian rugby has been working pretty hard, but it, during a, a large chunk of my time working in super rugby, for example, um, 
there was long streaks where Australian teams weren't competitive against the New Zealand teams. And like if you look at some of the outputs from those games, as an example, you go, for a couple of years, there was a negative correlation between territory, possession, and match outcome. So what would that look like? Some, someone like the Re- Melbourne Rebels would be playing the Crusaders, and we'd hold the ball for 50% of the game or 60% of the game and be going through whatever, 15, 20 phases, and then you play against the Crusaders, you drop the ball and they do three passes and score under the post, you know, so Incredible. they have the ball for a third of the game, but their, um, their skill execution is so high that you get, you know, you get punished by that. So I think that's probably the notable thing that you, uh, you know, as you start to go up and you start to, you start to put the best players in Australia together playing against yeah. the best players in New Zealand or Argentina, or wherever you're playing. Um, then that's the thing that drives up the, you know, it's that collective intellectual property, technical um, intellectual property that the players and the coaches have is probably the real thing that drives the intensity. And then you just have to make sure that you're preparing the blokes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with the physical bit that underpins it. Yeah, I gotcha. In, in terms of the intensity of test match rugby as well, like I remember hearing about the likes of Richie McCaw who wouldn't train during the week, you know, just in order to be able to make it out into the pitch at the weekends. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like my question is, how how much of a toll do these games take on the players in order to reach peak performance again six or seven days later? Yeah, look, and that's um, I think the players are actually what you tend to have too, particularly at international level, is like the way you get to that level is by being a resilient and robust athlete. Like, there's not many blokes who rack up lots of test caps who. Yeah, who, who don't regularly train and who don't have the ability to regularly train and perform. That's that's how they get good in the first place to actually, you know, to reach that level of performance to play international gotcha. rugby. So I think actually, um, you know, while those uh, you know Richie McCaw stories get highlighted, I actually probably think the opposite is true in the vast majority of cases. You know, and someone like McCaw, I'm, I'm not privy to his um, you know training history, but I imagine for large chunks of his career, it's only it's only at that end point where you go, you've accumulated such. Um, technical knowledge and exposure that you can afford to not train and, and then play. But certainly my yeah. experience of being around guys like, I don't know, like I, I couldn't believe the, you know, the capacity for work that someone like Michael Hooper would, could get through in those test games, really? but would be, but he wasn't doing that just on game day. Like he'd be doing the same thing on Tuesday, Tuesday wow. training, you know? Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I think one, if you're going to reach that level, unfortunately, like if you're, a fragile athlete either physically or mentally then probably through natural selection you probably don't you don't make it to that or you know it's rare that you would make it to that level it's rare probably you'd survive at that level so I think um, yeah, the blokes who train the most are getting better and are likely the ones who are going to get selected for you know international rugby and obviously there's a you know there's there is a management piece obviously guys are playing like the most intense games of their you know calendar year or their careers but um, yeah, generally their ability to recover well and then back it up is pretty is pretty high. Savage, that's so interesting to hear. Uh, I suppose it helps as well that Michael Hooper comes across a little bit crazy, right? <laughs> well, he's um, he, look. I, I I don't really know him like personally. I've only had that kind of a, a tour working with him, but his um, work ethic and uh, and leadership and kind of. Uh, yeah, his um, you know he's a great leader, but he exemplifies that through um, 
continued hard work. You know, it's, he's displaying the characteristics that he's demanding of players in the team. You know, he, even as a bloke who's been around uh, professional sport a while, like I, I learned a lot from that sort of, um, you know, from that sort of mentality from being around guys like that. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Before we move on to our quick fire, just one more question in relation to the AFL and the challenges that you did face coming from you know, over 11, 12, 13 years in rugby into that environment and how refreshing it is for you. Yeah, like it, it's it's really good. It's, it's interesting, um, you know, I tried to have a pretty open mind, but uh, I obviously have an idea of how things operate in, in a professional rugby environment because I spent, a, you know, 13 years working in that environment and another however long uh, previously, like interning. But coming into AFL, I had... Um, I didn't really have any uh, preconceptions about how things should run. Um, okay. And I guess the advantage, again, Rob Innes, who's our head of department here, who brought me on board. He, he's been around football, AFL football, for a long time, so understands the game. But again, probably similar to Damien on the medical side, has assembled, I, I think, part of the attraction of me joining the team is that I'm not from a football background, so I'm not coming in with you know uh, preconceptions about how things are how things are to be done. So... Um, like for me personally, the 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 department and the organisation provides the external reference for me. Like they're providing the things I don't know, and then equally I'm providing that to them. Like I'm providing the external reference to them. So um, you know, there's certain things that I don't give an give an example or um, plyometric load, for example, or plyometric jumping for developing elasticity. Uh, that wasn't something that is necessarily part of every AFL program because they run so much. And I, okay. My thought process was if we were like, what, why is that the case? If we're smart about how we implement it and where it's placed in the training week, I think there'll be, it can have a beneficial, it, it, it's, it's, it's just an example. I come in with a bit of external reference about where that might fit, how we fit that in another sport and then bring it in and then wow. combine that with the, with the knowledge from you know, the existing domain knowledge from people who are very experienced in football. Yeah. So I think, um, and, and the Swans are kind of known for uh, for being quite progressive with re- recruitment, you know, and not just the, the easy thing is to just keep hiring people from within football to, gotcha. um, you know, run football. So I think they've done a, a pretty good job there on the medical side and on uh, the athletic performance side of the departments are headed by people who are headed by very people who have a very good understanding of the game. And then within that, below that, we've tried to get in some diversity in the team to. You know, to um, to get some external reference into the program. So, um, coming across myself, I guess I had some um, preconceptions. Like I, I, I knew they ran a lot. Like the running loads are, are <laughs> hectic. Like and they're and they're crazy runners. But I've probably been surprised with the, the thing I've been surprised with is the level of contact really in the game and the level yeah. of like strength strength power requirements in there, mm. um, which I probably didn't. And you know it's it's different to uh, you know rugby union rugby league where you get those direct one on one I run into you from ten meters away contacts. But yeah. what you have is a high number of three sixty contacts. I guess people who are listening are from Gaelic football backgrounds or maybe more. You know, yeah. For me, it was quite a surprise. Though I actually went and trained with uh, my local team in Melbourne just before I started the role, and you know I just wasn't used to getting cleaned out from the sides. They got a spoil. <laughs> yeah punch through the air and some blokes whacking you in the head um, so there's a lot more contact to the game than what you think there's a lot more tackling to the game than what you think um, right. there's a big focus on 
acceleration and high speed running like spread the, basically the the contest i guess is the equivalent of say a rock and rub union and then you you spread from that so there's a big uh, there's a big focus on acceleration development um you know repeat speed so, so probably some of those the, the, the preconception coming in is that they just do lots of aerobic running and run around for long periods of time but there's actually a lot of contact there's a lot of strength power actions in there as well which i, I probably didn't uh, appreciate as much until i um you know was more immersed in the sport Class, class. Well, I'm by no means comparing uh, a pro AFL player to a five-side game of ball on a Wednesday night, but <laughs> even playing during the week with uh, a few of my friends and just being so out of touch in terms of awareness alone and the same yeah, yeah. direction, I was screwed. Like, but uh, yeah, the body felt that for a few days. But that's that's yeah. unbelievable, right? Uh, and super insight, like, and it's so exciting as well. Like, and it gives, it gives, well, I know it gives me far more of an interest to know that you're involved in the AFL in a sport that I never watched. Like, so I'll mm-hmm. be watching closely. Um, just to finish off with a couple of quick fires, if you're open to. Yeah, shoot. I've kept them, I've kept them safe. Um, number one being, in your opinion, what's the best once-off performance you've seen by any athlete from any sport? Oh, wow. Uh... Well, um, probably the best individual performance I've ever seen. There's a guy, uh, Sean McMahon, who's a wallaby. He's in Japan now with uh, Suntory. Um, but yeah, we played a super rugby game uh, 2016, I think, maybe possibly, yeah, 2016 up in uh, up in Brisbane. And it's probably the most, um, most influential I've seen a, a single player in a, in a game. Probably the other ones that jump out at me is... Uh, I was at Leicester at the time, but I remember uh, Manu Tuolagi having a really dominant performance against uh, New Zealand at Twickenham, where he pretty much he ran riot there early days in his uh, in his international career. And then probably um, you know coming into AFL, a more recent one is um, Lance Franklin, Buddy Franklin, who uh, I, I I knew who Lance was before I came in, but I don't think I understood like the the magnitude of the athlete he is within AFL. How, the kind of standing he has and the career he's had and his athletic ability but um yeah he kicked his uh, 1000 goal recently um in a game against Geelong and 30,000 people swarmed on the pitch where the the game had to be delayed for 35 minutes while we got all those people off the pitch to finish the, finish the last <laughs> 7 minutes so um yeah probably as a, an individual moment um thought that was a pretty uh, special one to to watch really well i know we were chatting with that briefly but like that was trending of course like but we don't mm. understand we don't understand that like that wasn't a final or anything you know what i mean like no i i didn't really understand it either the um i presumed so i the um i, I think the general consensus is that he may be the last ever player that uh just how the game is evolving and like okay. it's a very difficult if very it's a very difficult there's only I think he's the sixth or seventh player to do it but there's only been six or seven ever and the way the game's evolving is that he's probably the last and he's one of the greatest players of all time mm. um, but I didn't really understand it either I saw uh, the kit man actually came to me um, he kicked he, he, his fourth was a thousand goal and the kit man came to me after three and was like can you give me a hand to get like everything off the bench and I was like what do you mean He's like, we need to get all. There's always spare boots and you know jerseys and stuff yeah. rips. And he's like, we need to we need to get everything off the bench and down the tunnel. And I was like, why? And he's like, this place is going to go off. Like, and if he kicks another goal, no. I just presume that everything would kick off at the end of the game because you can't get anywhere near the pitch. You know, in most professional sports. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and I guess probably has been highlighted in the last 
couple of weeks when you see the pitch invasions and you know incidents of violence in the UK around the football it was um, yeah, yeah it's pretty unique to see something like that that was actually you know in good spirits and uh, it was a pretty special thing to be a part of amazing he'll be missed this weekend yeah I picked up um, uh, one game suspension so he's weekends of rest and recovering goes again next week mm. um, number two what is one event on your sporting bucket list oh Growing like European sports still dominates. Uh, you know, a sport like um, soccer is my like hobby. I reckon. I reckon I could never work in professional soccer because I'll probably ruin it as a like it's my version of sitting down and watching Coronation Street or Home and Away. I just love it so much as an entertainment uh, as an entertainment component. So I was up on Sunday watching the Champions League. I'd love to go to love to go to a Champions League final. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, granted the delays aren't there and all that. You know. Yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, and lastly, what is the strangest thing that you've witnessed on tour? <laughs> um, well, I don't know. What goes on tour stays on tour. There's probably <laughs> strange things that can't get um, that can't can't get discussed here. Uh, I, I, look, I guess from a practical perspective, we had some like crazy stuff over the uh, you know over the COVID situation. I think about um, uh, I, I guess how. Uh, <laughs> how professional sport how the kind of mentality has shifted in the last couple of years with COVID I remember we were training we were playing the All Blacks in Suncorp in Brisbane on a on a Saturday we were training all week in a secondary school in country New South Wales um, flew up on the day of the game and beat the All Blacks and I was thinking like you know a year and a half beforehand that just wouldn't have constituted high performance that wouldn't have you would have thought yeah. oh, there's no there's no way you can prepare to beat the All Blacks training in a secondary school gym and rural New South Wales and training on a you know a school rugby field but um, yeah that's probably it's redefined what I guess strange has become the new normal you just get a bit more adaptable as uh, things have been over the last couple of years of course adapt and overcome that's brilliant mm. Shane thank you so much for your time uh, best of luck versus Melbourne um, enjoy your bye week next week no doubt it's well earned thanks man and, and also congratulations on your impending arrival if we can just um, if you can just let listeners know where they can find you if they want to get you on their podcast if they want to reach out and so on uh, any details we much appreciate it yeah easy I'm um, I have a, a Twitter account I think it's Shane Bailey Han I'm pretty inactive on there but um, contact me we're probably probably the easiest place for any kind of uh, professional connections would be uh, would be through LinkedIn it's probably the, the easiest way to find me on there nice nice i'll be sure to include all that anyway in uh, the show notes and so on but in the meantime thank you very much your time is truly appreciated easy thank you thanks for having me on that is that for episode 50 shane that was quality and super interesting to hear your story to date best of luck as your journey continues i'll be watching closely to all who tuned in thank you very much for listening please feel free to share this across social media or if you have any questions for shane do be sure to reach out until next time catch you soon